0: Happy post-Super Bowl week, Helipod listeners. No more football for a little while, but still plenty to talk about. We have an awesome guest today. Mark Schlereth calls games for Fox, as a radio show in Denver. You know him as a three-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler. Uh, he is a wealth of football knowledge. We broke down uh, the Super Bowl. We talked a little bit about the quarterback carousel, and then we got into his career. The guy grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. He played at Idaho for Dennis Erickson. A lot of stories that I didn't know. Um, of course, we have to delve a little bit into his days with the Washington football team and the unbelievable uh days that he had there playing with the likes of Daryl Green and Dexter Manley and Art Monk and Joe Jacoby and Russ Grimm. Uh listen, this this was the heyday for Washington. This is the team that I grew up rooting for as a kid. And then He went out to Denver and wins a couple of Super Bowls there playing for Mike Shanahan. So shared some awesome stories, tremendous insight. Uh, Mark Schlereth, coming up here in just a moment. But first, I have to tell you about our presenting sponsor, Viori. They have been with us from day one. You know what a big fan I am of their gear, the core short with the built-in liner. They have some joggers, uh, sweatshirts. They're making jackets now. It's V-U-O-R-I. If you haven't heard of them, they're based here in California. Uh, you need to do yourself a favor and check them out. V-U-O-R-I clothing.com is the website. You put a slash helipod on there and you get 20% off your first order along with free shipping. It's the best athleisure wear on the planet. You're going to look good. You're going to feel good. The the look, look at this. Look at this t shirt t-shirt I'm wearing right now. It's the softest cotton on the planet. Great to work out in. Great to... Hang out in. Great to fly in if you're traveling again. I promise you, you're going to love it. Vioreclothing.com slash helipod for 20% off today. Without any any further ado, it's the latest edition of the Helipod with Mark Schlereth. Let's go. What? Welcome back to the Helipod. Mark Schlereth, our guest today. Three-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler, podcaster, Radio show host in Denver. You know him now from a Fox game analyst, former ESPNer, and green chili sauce founder. I, I, I mean, the list goes on. I could add yeah, actor right to there. the list as well. Stinking good chili you're wearing yeah, it right now. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, uh, my friend.
1: Add, yeah, actor, bad actor. You could add bad actor to that list. Uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, you know, we used to say it all the time when I was playing in the NFL the more you can do, the more you end up doing. You know, they just keep flopping things on you. But um, uh, anyhow, it's been good, man. It's been a good. It's been a good run, and I just uh, I continue to run and and I continue to answer my phone. I think that's the key.
0: That that is the key. When people are calling, things are good. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you picking up my uh, my phone call. And listen, let's get into some little Super Bowl stuff, some NFL news, and then I want to get into your story because I think okay. your story is absolutely awesome. Super Bowl, obviously, pure domination by the Bucs, you control the line of scrimmage, you know, as an offensive lineman, or even if you control as a defensive line, as the case with the Bucs, you're going to win the game. And you know better than anybody else that a patchwork offensive line could mean trouble. But I, I picked, I picked Kansas City. I thought they'd be able to make it through this. I feel like they were, you know, working on some level with the patchwork offensive line most of the season. But this was a level 10 ass kicking. What were you thinking when you were watching the game?
1: Well, exactly that. Uh, you know, it's you go through the entirety of the playoffs, regardless of who the quarterback is, if you dominate the line of scrimmage, you win. I mean, look at the Seattle game where the Rams just absolutely, I mean, thunder punched them, both offensively and defensively. They had no answers for it. And, you know, and, and here you you start, what's the kid's name, Warford? And then you bring in. Warford, yeah. Start, yeah, well, you bring in, you bring in uh, Goff, who just had thumb surgery 11 days ago, and you win that game. Because you absolutely dominated the line of scrimmage. And that was, it was an ass whipping. And, and I'll tell you, it was it was fascinating to me as I watched it. Because I think one of the things that's been really interesting to me as I've traveled around and called games for Fox, um, as I've consulted for different teams, one of the things that I always do when I'm consulting with teams is I want to take the passive out of pass protection. right? I want to be the aggressor. So the way it works, Dan, and, and, and think about this, because you've seen it. You've watched a corner transition to safety, a safety transition to linebacker, a linebacker transition to DN, to DN transition to, to a defensive tackle, a defensive tackle transition to offensive line. After offensive line, the transition is fan. There's n- there's nowhere else you can go. You're the worst athletes on the field. You don't go from D-line to li- or O-line to linebacker or O-line to D-lineman. You go O-line. To spectator. That's how it works. And so it's incumbent upon a coaching staff, especially when you have problems up front, to mitigate those potential problems. And when you drop back and get five guys out and play 5 0 protection, 92% of your passes, shame on you. The absolute shame on you for not mitigating the potential disaster. Did you not watch uh, Remmers in Super Bowl 50? when he played for the Carolina Panthers and, yeah, made Vaughn Vaughn, yeah, and make Vaughn the MVP. like, And now you're going to say, hey, you've been starting at right tackle for us. Move over to left tackle, and guess what? We're not going to support you. Like that is That, to me, is the ultimate football hubris. Hey, we're going to win the way we win, regardless of injury, regardless of the the defense we're playing. And Tampa Bay defense, I thought that I was with you. I thought Kansas City would find a way to win this thing but I thought it would be a really close game. And I thought, listen, the way – and I called four Tampa games this year. Their defense is so exceptionally fast, so exceptionally aggressive. And Todd Bowles' philosophy is, hey, we're going to give up three big plays, but we're going to make eight to ten, and we'll beat you doing that. And my thought process is, hey, man, if it's 50-50, if it's, hey, we get made three big plays, but we gave up three big plays, you end up losing that game. But they gave up no big plays. And they absolutely dominated the action. And I thought they were incredible as far as landmarks and spots and expanding landmarks and spots in defensive coverage from their linebacking crew. You know, you watch it, you go back and watch it, which I did. I went back and watched the coaches' film. Their linebackers are flying, getting underneath routes and route combinations, flying to spots. Zero regard for the run game, like zero. Like, let our four guys up front take care of that. We don't care. If you want to run it on us for 150 yards, be our guests. And, and they yet, didn't and do you, that, though, Mark. That's yeah, the that's crazy right.
0: thing. It's like, why didn't Kansas City run the ball? They were actually what, – what did Clyde Edwards-Hilaire average per carry? Was, was it 7. 6, 1 7 yards? yards. 7.1 7 yards.
1: yards per carry.
0: And and carried the ball nine times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's like I said, football hubris. You don't want to do it. And especially in the second half, I understand that you're down. It was 21 to six or whatever it was. I understand you're down and and you you've always been able to score in a minute 12. Right. And and get right back into games. And this was a situation where you needed to, to pound the rock, have a couple of play actions, you know, put a 10 play six minute drive together, get a touchdown and get yourself back into the game and make them get out of what they're doing. But they never one time made the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get out of, of what they were in. And now they were, they were multiple in their coverages. They played a lot more zone than you would think Um, in critical situations. They really played two man. They always kept somebody over the top of Travis Kelsey, somebody over the top of Tyreek Hill. But the bottom line is they played a ton of zone coverage. They hit their spots. They expanded their spots. They took away that first read in the progression, made Patrick Mahomes pull the ball. And once he pulled the ball, that offensive line couldn't hold up and, and you know, and, and they never adjusted ever. So, you know, shame on you guys for not adjusting.
0: Yeah. I was really surprised in the second half that you didn't see, you know, more running backs chipping or leaving an extra tight end in there. Uh, they didn't really run an extra mo- They didn't do that at all. I mean, maybe a handful of times in that first drive in the second half, and then they just got away from it.
1: Yeah. And, and they were facing, it's funny because there was a lot of, you know, mixture of coverages early in that game. In the second half of that game, they basically said, "If you're going to beat us, your defense is going to have to show up and stop our offense, and you're going to have to put long drives together, and then you're going to have to hope you have the ball on the last drive, and you know a field goal or a touchdown wins it." Like that was what Tampa Bay said as a defense. They played two high safeties. They played, you know, they played two man. They played quarters and they played uh, cover two. But always two I say, and and basically inviting you, if you want to run it on us, please be our guests. And it was like the Disney, you know, be our guests, be our guests. It's a tale as old (laughs) as time. And they chose not to do it, Dan. It's it's mind boggling, really.
0: Well, you said you called four Tampa games this year. At that point, they were, what, seven and five. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: much was being made about the relationship of Brady and Arians, right? Because Bruce, as you know, he, he doesn't pull any punches, man. He'll speak his mind. And if Brady made a bad throw, he will say Brady made a bad throw. Now he laughed at it, you know, after the fact and after they won, Hey, our relationship was great. But was there a time when you were there, like the rest of us around the country wondering, Hey, you know, maybe if this doesn't finish well, maybe they have to pick either Arians or Brady. Did you ever get that sense, you know, right around the midpoint of the season?
1: No, um, it's funny too, because I've known Bruce for a long time and he's been a guy that I've connected with and that I, you know, that I, I talked to during the off season and I talked to during the season, you know, and we send text messages back and forth. And um, like you said, like if you play for Bruce, there is no virgin meat on your ass. It is all <laughs> going to get chewed it, it, and he does not discriminate. And part of my thought process on that was, if he made that concession for Tom Brady, then all of a sudden you're not authentic anymore. And I think the number one thing you have to be as a head coach, regardless of what your philosophy is, you have to be authentic. And, you know, a lot of guys come in. We've seen this with uh, ex-New England Patriots. You know, they come in and they try to Belichick their teams, right? They come in and they try to be somebody that they're not. And they talk about the Patriot way and how I'm bringing that. You saw it and in all- Denver. Right. And all the guys collectively roll their eyes and go, oh, my God, here we go with this guy. Right. He hasn't earned that. You haven't earned that. Right. You haven't earned that. And one thing I'll say about Brady that it, I, I've, I found it really interesting. I've, I've been multiple Zoom calls with Brady over over the course of the year. And um, he's about as regular a dude like he just wants to be a dude. Like, he is – it's who he is. He loves football. He loves the grind. He loves being – you know, he loves leading his football team. There's nobody that's going to outwork him. Um, And and he wants to be coached. Like, the, the beauty of what happened in New England is you found a quarterback who developed into a superstar that loves to get coached, right? So he became the best player on the planet, and yet he still loves to be coached. And so if you're going to coach him and coach him hard, because that's what he expects, guess what? Every guy on your roster has got to accept hard coaching. Like he's a perfect fit in my mind for Bruce Arians. So I knew there was never, ever an issue. The the issue was you're putting all these new pieces together. And the issue was two philosophies that had to find a way to, to mesh and meld together. Because Bruce Arians, and this comes directly from Bruce, has this philosophy of, I always want to be more static stagnant in formations and personnel groupings. And I want the quarterback to read the defense post-snap Tom for 20 years was not static, right? He was motion. He wants to know who's following who who's got man who's you know, who's in zone. He wants all that stuff pre-snap so he can read your mail. And at, at, at a point, they had to mesh that or meld that kind of concept together so that they were on the same page. And that took time. The other thing that took time, there's two things that I found interesting. Tom talked to me personally about um, nonverbal communication and the importance of an offense, being able to read the same stuff, read the same defense, read the same keys, read the same coverage patterns. And they weren't together early in the season. The other thing that happened is he said, I have always worked while the defense was practicing. I've always worked with my receivers of how I want them to read a certain coverage, a certain leverage position, all those things. And he goes, it's so damn hot in Tampa that my receivers are sucking just sucking gas and and drinking water and they're getting their hamstrings worked on because dehydration. So until we got to middle of the season, until we got to week 10, week 11, week 12, we got no extra work together. Hmm. And he goes, and where we really started, once the heat kind of subsided and and once it wasn't so damn humid, that's where we got the extra work in. And that's where we started to take off as an offense, which I found really interesting because, you know, I'm, I mean, I know I've played in cold weather cities. I, I know what it's like in practicing in late October and November and December and, and what you do to, to stay warm and how much extra work you can actually get done while the defense is over there taking their reps.
0: That's fascinating because now – They've had that year, and they happen to have. Oh, by the way, won a Super Bowl basically right. with no off season, and the big challenge for them is going to be finding a way to keep all these pieces together, right? So you're going to have to make some choices there. There, there, you might have to choose between a Shack Barrett and a Chris Godwin, right? You can't. You're not going to tag Shack again, and Godwin's going to get paid, and the salary cap's going to be lower this year because the league lost a bunch of money. How is that going to be the most difficult part about this process in terms of getting back to the Super Bowl for Tampa?
1: I think that's part of the process. I think the interesting thing to me about Tampa is like from a, you know, we all talk about leadership and we talk about what that means. And it's really hard to put your finger on it. Um I think guys were so guys on that team. I mean, I talked to him. I talked to Mike Evans. I talked to Chris Godwin. I talked to, you know, I talked to the guys on that team, JPP and, and Levante David. You know, I, I spent time with those guys, like just playing with Tom Brady, just experiencing what that was like. Um, You know, having, having that believability that regardless of where you guys are, you're going to find a way to win. Like, I think there is, there is, there's so much um, kind of almost euphoria surrounded in that that, yeah, it's going to be hard to resign guys. Yeah, guys are going to go get paid and all that stuff. But I think your core guys are going to want to find a way to stay in Tampa, to stay with Tom Brady. You know, Gronk has already said I'm, I'm coming back for sure. I just think there's going to be this let's go out here and do something, you know, that, that very few teams, only seven teams in the history of the national football league has done. And that's gone back to back. And we've got the nucleus and we've got the ability to get that done. I I just, I find it fascinating. You're right. Keeping guys together is going to be hard, but I think when you play with Tom Brady or you play with a Peyton Manning, or you play in a situation like that, um, I think the hometown discount all of a sudden becomes, Hey, I've made a lot of money and winning championships is really cool. And, you know. I'd like to be a part of something like that.
0: You know, it's it's so interesting to hear you say that. Um, two guys I'm very close with that i worked with for a long time. Willie McGinnis played for the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Didn't make as much money as he probably could have in other places. Ended up leaving there to sign one final contract in Cleveland to play for Romeo Cronell because he knew that was his last deal and he wanted to get paid. MJD played the vast majority of his uh, career in Jacksonville, didn't win a ton of games. I think he only played in one playoff game. And in his mind, even today, he goes, yeah, winning Super Bowls is nice, but you want to get paid. You have one career and you want to make as much money as you possibly can. Is that, is that an inner struggle for guys? Was it, was it for you when, when you played you had the luxury of playing in two unbelievable organizations for two hall of fame head coaches, Mike Shanahan, not there, but I think he should be at some point.
1: Yeah, no, no question. I, I, You know, I mean, obviously you want to get, you want to get paid. I just understand how miserable it is to lose. Yeah. Like the game is, it's an arduous task, both mentally and physically. And it's really hard when you got no shot. And I was there for a couple of years in Washington at the end after Joe Gibbs retired. And you are rolling, and you are getting up. You are like, "Oh man, here we go." This team has. Well, I mean, we got we got no shot to win a game this weekend.
0: That Richie Pettibone a, year wasn't very fun, was it?
1: No, Richie Pettibone, and then and then obviously Norris' first Norris. year wasn't very good either.
0: Yeah. So it just was. It it just
1: is. It's really really hard. And and so I I think about I think about you know the value of of money, and like if you can stay somewhere for long term. Like, I stayed in Denver long-term. You know what? Like, I probably took less. I had an offer on the table to go to Seattle. Took a little bit less, stayed here, right? Didn't maximize my value, if you will. I've been maximizing my value for 21 years here in the Denver, Colorado community. Because I keep getting paid here. Radio shows and everything else. So, you know, I I think there is, uh, you know, I think the problem with, with players in the NFL, and I understand why, there's such a short-term gratification aspect to this game. And I think oftentimes, and and it, it, you know, look at our, our players association, right? I mean, should there be some type of lifetime insurance for vested veterans? Because we're all going to have problems once it's over. Yes. Do we ever negotiate? Do we ever stand firm and negotiate it? No, we have such a short-term I got to get mine now mentality as players. And ultimately I think there's a lot more to your career. Um, and, and I just think you have to look at all those things, family, school, community, everything that you want in your life. You've got to be able to think a little bit longer term um, than I just got to get paid. And, and, you know, I got to go to, you know, one of these organizations that just is never going to win. I, I don't want to do that.
0: that. That's a great point about being a commodity in a market after you're done playing, you know, growing up in Washington, working there locally for a long time before I moved out to LA. You see that with guys, I mean, obviously there's so many great players that played in that organization, but the Daryl Greens of the world, Brian Mitchell, who's uh-huh. still doing stuff locally. Um and, and that with Doc is be-
1: Walker, hey Rick and Doc Walker has made a lifetime living in Washington, being a, you know, being a backup tight end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 made a great living it's still working for the organization. Uh-huh. Um all right, let's talk a little quarterbacks. Uh, this roulette wheel that's already going around and around is going to be incredibly interesting going into the offseason. The latest is, is Russell Wilson um, saying he'd be like to be more involved in personnel decisions. Uh, they have received calls the Seahawks have about Russell. They said they're not willing to trade him. He said a couple of times he's frustrated with getting hit too much. Let, let me start with this. How involved was John Elway? in personnel decisions when you guys were in the Super Bowls in Denver, is that, is that a realistic ask for franchise quarterbacks in this era?
1: I, I don't believe so. Uh, I don't believe it's a realistic ask, um, you know, and, and Russell's incredible because Russell, you know, Russell's a guy that as soon as he gets done with the game, he rewatches it twice once just to watch it, then wants to take notes on what he should be like, what he could do better, what he needed to do, you know, all these things. And then he starts game plan. He spends the next two days. He pu- he puts together a 15 page report for all his receivers, his offensive coaches on the opponent. What they are in, you know, what they are in blitz, what they are in dog, what they are in base, what they are in like what coverage do they run out of base. If they're in a underfront, what coverage do they run? If they're in an overfront, what coverage? Like uh, he puts together a detailed report by the time he comes in on Wednesday. Everybody has had it Tuesday night. Like the guy is unrelenting. Wow with his preparation, which I really appreciate. I appreciate that part about him, but, you know, there are people that get paid to, to scout and to grind through that film and to figure that out. And I I would say this, I think one of the, the, the biggest things you need as an organization and as a player, you need to understand everybody else's problems. I think the great coaches not only attack the weakness of the opponent, but they will not attack the weakness of the opponent while exposing their own weakness. If attacking that weakness exposes their weakness, they'll say, I'll find something else to attack, but I am not going to put my team in harm's way and ask like, you should never be surprised if you put guys in a terrible position. And if you put somebody in a position to fail, you should never be surprised when the guy fails. Like like, I, I don't understand that. Like I got, I was so, I was late in my career. I just quit pulling. We took all the power, all the, I played left guards. We took all 16 power out. We took everything that pulled to the right out of our, our game, counter out, power out, all that stuff out. And the, the principle of that was Mike knew, hey, listen, Sneak can't pull. His legs are bad. His knees are really bad, but he's still really good pass protector. And he's still a really good zone blocker. And we, can, we win a lot of games if we execute that well. Why would you put me in a position to be hurt? Or why would you put me in a position to fail? Let's not put our players in positions to fail. So I think it's really important for coaches to understand everybody's issues. So many guys are just focused on their own individual issues. And Russell Wilson wants to talk about protection. Shoot, I'd, I'd venture to guess 30% of the sacks are on you. Because you you bypass the first thing that's open, in hopes to make the schoolyard play, and you make a lot of them. There's nobody better. I you know I've joked on, about this on a broadcast uh, when Tyler Lockett and Russell Wilson, when things break down and they go schoolyard, I, I tell you they went to the University of Narnia because these two guys are they're freak shows, right? Like what the, their connection is unbelievable. But you also take a lot of hits, unnecessary hits, and you take a lot of sacks because you wanna extend every single play. So don't complain about the guys up front. When you've put the guys up front in a position to fail, that's on you. And if right. you're getting 45 sacks a year, hey man, if if 15 to if fifteen to 16, 17 are your fault, well, that's on you. So yeah, you know, from a protection standpoint, you know, I always look at protection um, as a coaching issue. So you know the Sacks Russell's constantly getting sacked forty to close to fifty times a, a year, right? So part of it is if I have to drop back, and with you know, with you know thirty five dropbacks a game, and I'm I'm shooting seven step drops and five step drops that have two hitches, um, there's not an offensive line in in the National Football League that can hold up. The athletes on the other side are just better than us that's, that's the way it. Is. I mean, think about, think about how it works. Like I can whip your ass 65 plays in a row. I give up one sack at the end of the game and I had a horrible game and you go to the pro bowl. You know, that's why defensive linemen are, they're dumb. They don't understand. They're just don't understand the game. So like, that's the, that's the way it works. So the bottom line for me is take those 35 plays, right? Give me, give me half a dozen three-step drops where I can be aggressive. Give me half a dozen five-step drops with no hitch, where I can also upkick that, right? Now throw me a couple of uh, bubble screens, a couple of smoke screens, throw me a couple of swing passes, throw me a couple of, of, of screens, throw me some hard run action play passes, right? So it looks like it's hard run action and now it's play pass. Give me all of those and take it down to 12 where I actually have to hold up. But because I've shown you so many different things, I've shown you those up kicks, I've come off running the ball, and we actually throw it. Now, everything I show you, you have to respect as a defensive lineman. So I've essentially blocked you without blocking you. That's where I come up with take the passive out of pass protection. That's what has to happen. And you have to as a head coach or as a play caller or as a quarterback, you have to understand those things. And if you don't understand those things, you're doomed to be very average up front.
0: Well, and they've been very average up front for a while and they've tried to, you know, draft guys and sign free agents and in, in Dwayne Brown. And um mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, you know, 32 years old 10 years ago was was near the end for a quarterback. And we've seen how that's changed. 32 right. years now, you you have 10 more good years left. Yeah, you're right?
1: entering your prime. You're entering right. your prime
0: at 32. Yeah. So so if you're Seattle do, and, and you get two first round picks for, for Russell and, and, a, and a quarterback, let's say you get the Stafford trade. Do you, do you think about that?
1: Um, I, me personally, no, and you, you know, you're, you're a Washington fan. I grew up in an organization. Bobby Beathard drafted me. Joe Gibbs was my head coach. I mean, they, they went, I think they went a 10 a year period without a first round draft choice. They went a seven year period without a first round draft choice. It, like trading a known commodity for an unknown commodity when 50% of your first rounds, like think about this since 2000, from 2009 to 2016, after Carson Wentz gets traded, there will be not one quarterback drafted in the first round that is with his original team, not one. Say the years
0: again, say the years again,
1: from 2009 to 2016, 23 first round draft choices at the quarterback position. 23 guys from 09 to 2016. Once Carson Wentz gets moved, not one guy will be with his original team. That's crazy. So you tell me, you tell me how good the evaluation process is. You tell me, you know, how 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 much of a sure thing these guys are that you're drafting in the first round. Like it is it is such an unknown commodity. So I'm like, hey, what I give two first rounders? For Russell Wilson, you did, I would do it all. I, I don't give a rip about first rounders. I can't right. tell you how many first rounders I've watched come in and couldn't, you know, couldn't play a lick. So um they, they just they're not as valuable to me. Where they're really valuable is controlling your salary gap. Yeah. That's where first rounders are valuable.
0: Well, especially at the quarterback position. So if you can find somebody and you get four and then that fifth-year option right on that rookie deal, that's sure. valuable. That that
1: part is valuable, but again, you got to find somebody. Nobody. Hey, from two thousand nine two thousand sixteen, nobody found anybody. There, they were all the wrong. Well, you know, I mean, Carson Wentz played well for a while, and right. obviously, Jared Goff went to a Super Bowl. But like the 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 LA model makes perfect sense to me. You're in a you're like you're in a four year window right now. You have got two of the best players in the world on defense. And Aaron Donald and, and Ramsey, right? You've got a young running back, and you've got some some receivers that I think are complete football players. Robert Woods, uh, Cooper Cup, those dudes are football players. You're like you've got a you've got a solid system. You're a quarterback away from really being able to compete in the NFC, and um, and you know you you feel like you've got the ceiling on Jared Goff. You can't go any higher. Matthew Stafford, uh, you know I don't care what anybody says. Matthew Stafford is an elite level. He's got elite level toughness, and he's got an elite level skill set, and he's just been in a really crappy organization.
0: Well, it's funny. I, I remember the first Stafford game I did was three or four years ago. They were in New Orleans. They were playing the Saints. Was calling the game with Chris Spielman, who's awesome. Mm-hmm. And Spielman says in about the third quarter, he goes, "You you have to pull Stafford out. He's getting so beaten up. You know, they're down by three scores. It makes no sense to leave him in the game." Ten minutes later, he had thrown two touchdown passes. They were down by three, and he goes, "Just as I said, if you have Matthew Stafford, you have to leave him in the game."
1: (laughs) Right? Here's like I'm doing a I'm doing a Tampa game. I think it's uh, gosh, it was uh the day after Christmas, maybe. Um, anyhow, um, yeah, I left on I left on Christmas Day. I flew in Christmas Day, and uh, and then uh, we called the game the next day, and. Interestingly enough, like it's, it's Tampa and it's Detroit. And, um, and I'm talking to Bruce Arians and, and Bruce goes, you know, this doesn't happen very often. He goes, there's one guy. Like there is one guy. I leave the locker room early just to watch him warm up. And that's Matthew Stafford. Wow. He's like unbelievable arm talent, tough as shit. (laughs) He's like the guy I love him. I just go out to watch him throw because he's that he's that talented and i i i am you know i am a huge fan and people always throw out you know records and never want to playoff game yep. do you know in 12 years of starting do you know how many times a running back has rushed for 100 yards in 12 years of starting for detroit
0: i think they have like 3 or 4 right 11 times, 11 times. in 12 years That's they've incredible. had a 100-yard rusher
1: 11 11 times in
0: 12 years well they went they went From the time Reggie Bush retired, and he's been done for four or five years until I think this season or last season without a hundred yard rusher.
1: Yeah, well, they Reggie was the last guy, and this Reggie Bush, who you know is not you know Mr. Between the Tackles, uh, and I can say that with I love Reggie, Reggie's a great man. Um, he's the last guy that rushed for a hundred or a thousand yards for for the Detroit uh, Lions. The other thing is, is, he had one top 10 defense, and that year they went 11 and five. I mean, like you, you got to look at, here's what, here's what I loved about, you know, here's what I love. I live in Denver, Colorado, right. And I'm on the radio and, and I piss everybody off. Like I'm, I'm persona non grata in you know, at the Valley, you know, they hate me over there. Um, and that's fine. What, whatever, you know, I mean, I, I'm just doing my job. So, you know, we drafted two wide receivers last year and Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler and people got, Oh, now we have the speed to compete with Kansas city. Like we're going to, I'm like, are you guys high? Like do you under have do this is not fantasy football. This is real football and you don't have a roster that's even close to competing with that roster. And, you know, needless to say they go five and 11 or yeah, whatever they are. But I think watching the super bowl was, I, I have this Island that I live on uh, that I tell all my Devon listeners, it's called, I told you so Island. And uh, <laughs> there's always a Mai Tai flowing and the sun is always shining and the beach is absolutely gorgeous. Crystal clear water. Um, and the one thing that I took away from that Tampa, the Tampa victory was, damn, how deep and how good is their roster? How much athleticism and speed do they have on the defensive side of the ball? And and how nasty are they up front? Um, and I just was, I bet you 70% of Tom Brady's passes were all off of play action, all off of run action and play action. It's just, you know, the way they're built. And and it just was one of those things where I'm like, you know, the quarterback carousel that you talked about that we're all on. I'm like, you guys do realize that Deshaun Watson was four and twelve last year, right? You do realize that if you don't build a roster, it's really hard to win. It's really hard to win if you don't have a good roster. So um, you know, it's kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg, man. I, I gotta build my roster and then hope I find I hope I find somebody or somebody comes available.
0: Well, speaking of building rosters, former Fox college football analyst, urban Meyer, of course, in Jacksonville. Now Mm -hmm. they have the number one overall pick Um, safe to assume it's going to be Trevor Lawrence. Obviously what, if you're, if, if you're urban and the guy's a CEO, right? I I, I think Mm -hmm. he's going to have tremendous success on the NFL level because listen, he's not this offensive genius. He's not a play caller. He's an organizer. He's a leader of men. And I think as a head coach in the NFL, that's what you need to be. And if you're him going into Jacksonville, you have a number one pick. You have this elite talent uh, from all the draft and talent evaluators. Trevor Lawrence is the best guy to come out of college since since Andrew Luck, right? But but if you could get Deshaun Watson, a known quantity right now, do you do you make that? Do you give up for? Um, we talk about first round draft picks. Do you give up right. four first round draft picks if you can get Deshaun Watson right now?
1: Absolutely not, because I mean, to me, you have got you've got so much work to do from a roster building standpoint. Um, you've got so much work to do up front with your offensive line. You've got so much work to do um, across the board. Like they need to, they need to be better everywhere. And so to me, you know, I mean, I get Trevor Lawrence and, and that's the direction you're going to go. Um, you've got to, you've got to not only build the roster. I think the second point, Dan, that, that nobody talks about is it's one thing to draft a guy. It's another thing to develop that guy and to put that guy in a position to win. I think ultimately, and we talked about Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and that relationship and and the fact that Tom Brady allowed himself to be coached. But I think the thing that I have talked to a lot of talent evaluators, a lot of people within that organization or used to be in that organization. the one thing Bill Belichick probably does better than anybody else is he has a philosophy of don't tell me what a guy can't do. Tell me what he can do. And I think we, I I think this is just human nature in general. We tend to, you know, look at everybody else's issues so we can feel better about us, right? Well, at least I don't, you know, boom, I don't, I'm not that guy. And at least I don't do that. At least I don't, right? And so it makes me feel better about me. And Bill Belichick is, he tells his scouts and he tells his coaches, don't tell me what a guy can't be or what he isn't. Tell me what he is. And then can we put him in a position? I don't care if it's six plays a game that helps us win that game. And I think they do a phenomenal job over the course of the season of putting guys in positions to win. And, and they develop them over time, over the course. And some of those things that are weaknesses end up becoming strengths, but we, a lot of times we put guys in and then we say, well, here's our system go. Right. Instead of saying, Hey, you know, this guy's a really good player, but he doesn't do this well yet. Let's keep them out of that position. So I, I just think that um, as easy as that sounds, it's really hard for organizations to do because guys get tied to what they know. Guys get tied to their system. Um, and and ultimately, I just think you've got to be, you've got, there's there's got to be a certain fluidity to football and to putting guys in positions to win. Um, and, and oftentimes we are too stringent in what we want. This is our system, you know? And ultimately, your system has to be what your players can execute. Right. Um, and, and it has to morph from year to year. And you've got to really be great at self evaluation and saying, hey, you know, we ran something this way. And, you know, and I think we need to change it and do something a little bit different. And I think you have to be, you know, flexible that way.
0: I, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, what Urban does in Jacksonville. Going to take a quick break here with Mark Schlereth, and then we're back to talk about his career. Time for a quick timeout to tell you about a few of our sponsors. And we start with Greens Plus, a health food leader since 1989, known for creating the first ever blended green superfood powder and the first company to infuse that green superfood into a bar. The bars, powders tastes great the most effective way to improve your immunity detox your body boost your energy and get that nutritional insurance that your body deserves all organic gluten-free available at whole foods amazon or greensplus.com i recommend going to greensplus.com because you get 20% off if you use the promo code helly you like smoothies throw some wild berry superfood powder in there GreensPlus. At Vaco, the motto is, we invest in your career, so you are here for the duration of ours. Vaco, a premier talent and solutions firm that provides boutique-level service with global reach in the areas of consulting, consultative project resources, executive search, permanent placement, and strategic staffing. You need somebody to fill that C-suite position? Vaco has you covered. Their are areas of expertise all across the board, folks. Accounting, finance, tech, healthcare IT ops, administration, or international managed services. Vaco's still growing. They serve over 40 markets across the globe, 1,000 employees, 5,000 consultants, and 750 million in revenue. At Vaco, they're doing it right. Check them out, Vaco.com. That's V-A-C-O.com for more info on how they can connect people to their dream jobs and help leading companies find talent to grow their business. So back with Mark Schlereth, three-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler, as promised, talking about uh, his career a little bit here. So you grew up in Anchorage, had Mm -hmm. my first trip to Alaska, did that cruise thing through the Inside Passage. We end up in Anchorage and uh, just, I mean, God's country, just beautiful, beautiful uh, area up there. And you had two scholarship offers um, coming out, right? It was Idaho and Hawaii?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And, And- Growing up in Anchorage, how did you naturally not go to the polar opposite and end up in Hawaii? Was Idaho just more familiar?
1: There's two reasons. Uh, One, we had vacationed in Hawaii. Like When you grow up in Alaska, that's the number one vacation destination because Hawaii is a a direct five-hour flight from Anchorage. Right. And, you know, and just to get down to Seattle's three and a half hours. Right. And you're still in drizzly weather, <laughs> you know, back then. So it was kind of a natural destination. And so I'd been to Hawaii a bunch um, and there was two things. One, I, I grew up in like 55 and drizzly is my kind of day. Like I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, I love it. <laughs> and so I really thought long and hard about could I wake up to, 75 and breezy and sunshiny all day, every day. I think I'd go crazy. I think I would go insane. Um, And so I knew myself well enough to know I'd like to go somewhere that actually has four seasons, you know, and that, like, I thought like that would be something that I would be like from a familiar standpoint, something that would, I would gravitate towards more. The other thing is, um, you know, I went on my recruiting trip to Hawaii and they were in the whack at the time. And, um, and during that time they had the pro bowl going on. And so they would always bring the recruits like myself to the pro bowl practices, you know, cause they were on the campus at the university of, uh, Hawaii. And I am watching Earl Campbell and, and Eric Dickerson and Joe Klecko. And like I'm watching these guys, you know, I'm a, you know, a little, um, six, three, you know, 220 pounds from Alaska. And and I'm like, I really like watching everybody and then and then seeing the guys that played all the Samoan guys and stuff and play to the Hawaii, you know, walking through the weight room. I was like, I don't know if I can play here. <laughs> I, I played. I, seriously, I played in Alaska. You know, we played six games a year and it was intimidating. I was like, I just don't know. Like I'm looking at these NFL players. I'm looking at these these dudes, these like I said, Samoan dudes in the weight room. Just I mean. I like, I don't know that I'll ever actually play. I don't know that I I can handle this. And then, you know, I went to Idaho and I was just a different former athlete, right? They were division one, double a, and I'm like, okay, at least if I come here, I think I can play. And, uh, and I questioned whether I was going to play there or not. Also, just because I, I didn't play a lot, you know, you didn't play a lot of football when you grew up in Alaska.
0: So you end up having a good career there. John Fries was your quarterback for a little while. Mm-hmm. Dennis Erickson was the coach for when you got there. How long was he there after you got there?
1: Uh, Dennis was there for several years. And then uh, Keith Gilbertson took over when okay. Dennis went to Wyoming. Yes.
0: All right. So you, you have a good career there. You get drafted by Washington in 1989. And that was two years after they won the Super Bowl. This is one of my great memories. That was the Super Bowl when Doug Williams exploded in the second quarter and Timmy mm-hmm. Smith and they, and they beat Denver. So this is the heyday for the then Redskins. Gibbs is the head coach. Joe Bugle's the O-line coach. You get drafted by the team that has the Hogs. I think Jim Lachey had just arrived from San Diego. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct.
0: Take me and, – and then you look across the ball, and it's like Manley and Man and Green and Neil Oklowitz and Alvin Walton who would put yeah. you on your ass and Todd Bowles at the other safety. Take me back to that first – training camp and your first time wearing the burgundy and gold. And what was that like for you coming out of Idaho?
1: All right. I want to, I want to tell you first, I want to go back to that Idaho because my career, I was injured my whole career pretty much. So I actually played defense. I I came in as an offensive lineman and I was athletically gifted. You know, I could, I, I ran, I mean, I ran, I could run and I could jump and they moved me to defense and I ended up playing defense for three years.
0: Oh, wow. And,
1: Yeah. And I kept, I tore ACL and I, you know, I kept hurting myself. Right. And it got to the point where I moved back to the offense. Um, I moved back to offense, my redshirt junior year after all these injuries and played a couple of games at center and tore up my elbow in a game and was done again. I had, I, I got it caught in a pile and, and dislocated it and tore the ligaments in it. So I was going to have another season, season ending surgery. And the university of Idaho, um, retired me from football. So I was retired from football for about eight months. And, um, and you know, you, when you're young, you heal, you know, you have the surgery, you heal, started lifting again, started working out again. And then I pestered my way back, back onto the team. I, I, Mike, I, it's funny. I was at this event with my old coach, Keith Gilbertson. He has a different story than me. I pestered everybody to the point where they were just like, sign these papers to limit our liability towards you as an injury risk. And we'll let you play. He swears that I jumped over the desk and pinned him up against the wall and threatened to kill him. Um, I don't remember it that way. I bet um, you don't. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyhow, they let me come back and play my senior year, and I ended up playing um, and, and playing the whole season without being hurt, but I had no agent. I, I mean, I had nobody, I had nothing, right? I played one year of college football essentially on the offensive line. And one night, Marvin Washington, so Marvin Washington was a defensive end who was a basketball player, came out and played one year of college football, got 14 sacks. He was 6'6", 2, you know, 265. Basketball. Just chiseled, yeah, just a specimen, right? And so um everybody is, you know, everybody's really high on Marvin. And one night I, I like I said I don't have an agent, I don't I played one year of college football, I just don't know what I'm going to do and I'm training and I'm trying to figure out what's going on and Marvin calls me up called him dirty wash and dirty says, Hey man, I got so-and-so coming to work me out tomorrow. Why don't you just show up to my workout? Great. Thanks. 7.00 AM. I show up. It's like the Bengals. Right. And I was like, Hey, my name is Mark. I play offensive line. I just, I just really appreciate it. You'd work me out if you'd let me work out and everybody, but the jets was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. The jets were like, dude, like this is a, a private workout. Get out of here type of thing. You know? I pestered them too, to let me work out, but they had no intention of, 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 you know, really taking a look at me, but here's the crazy thing. So Marvin probably called me 15 times to crash his workouts. And I blew Marvin away in everything. I mean, I was, I was 285, running four seven, you know, I was doing 30, 36, 37, 38 reps at 225. Um, I, I had, you know, I, I had six knee surgeries and I was still doing a 35 inch vertical jump. Um, you know, I just had I, I had ridiculous numbers. Right. And so anyhow, that's how I ended up getting drafted in the NFL. If it wasn't for Marvin Washington, I would have never been drafted in the NFL. Him being my friend, a guy that I dearly love, basically, you know, and it's one of the it's one of the re, uh, one of the ways you learn about like sacrifice and what it means to be a part of a team. I love being a part of a team. I love being a part of it. I always, I always tell people when I'm out public speaking and doing my thing, like think about when Jesus started his ministry. What's the first thing he did? He grabbed 12 disciples, said, let's let's build a team and let's change the world. I love being a part of an offensive line, being a part of a, a, a offensive unit, of being a, you know, being um, a part of a broadcast team, being a part of my radio team. I love, I just love team. You know, I, I love the family aspect of it. And I love the fact that you have to sacrifice for one another for anything great to happen. And so Marvin makes this sacrifice for me. And it's really the only reason I got to play in the NFL. Now, fast forward, 1997, we win the world championship. We beat the green Bay Packers. Uh, I am pretty much single handedly won the game uh, the helicopter spin is, is because <laughs> I missed my block, but I don't even <laughs> want to get into that. Um, No. So, so we win that championship. I'm down, you know, I'm I'm sure I had some off season surgery because I always did. Right. So I'm down in the, uh, in the equipment room or not in the equipment room, in the training room with ice on my knees or whatever. And Mike Shanahan comes down he's got a sheet of paper, like this napkin right here. Right. And he goes, Hey man, um, we really need some depth along the defensive line. We need a guy that can go from DN to D tackle kind of guy that has that versatility um, because most of all, I just want a guy that fits our team, a guy that could be a real Bronco. And so he hands me this piece of paper, goes, check out. And there's like seven guys on, right? First guy my eyes gravitate to, Marvin Washington. I go, sign him. So he signed him, and Marvin and I won a Super Bowl together as members oh, of the Denver Broncos. That is so crazy. right. So that's that's how I got into the NFL. And then getting into, you know, it's funny, fear is an interesting motivator, right? Like. The difference between people who make it and people who don't is the people, because everybody has fear, and the people who let their fear paralyze them never under they never realize their potential. Like I was scared to death. I threw, there's not a game that I ever played that I didn't throw open a trash can, but somehow I kept putting one foot in front of the other and going, okay, here we go, let's let's roll. So my first, like, I get drafted to, to Washington. And I'm with the Hawks. And the very I, I'll never forget this. I, I, I swear to you, I am we're doing one on one run block, the very first training camp practice. And it's Dexter Manley and it's Joe Jacoby. Oh gosh. And they're lined up and they are hunting, right? They're coming off the ball. And Dan, I kid you not, he's hum! And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I was like, oh it was a sound I'd never heard before. Like it, all my years of high school football, all my years of college football, I was like, it's a sound that I'd never heard. The collision was such that I was like, I was literally peed down my leg a little bit. I was like, I don't belong here.
0: <laughs>
1: I, kid, I kid you not. I was like, I don't belong here. Like I had never seen anything like it. Russ Grimm would come off the ball. Russ Grimm's spindly little arms, didn't really work out, just a big barrel-chested guy, just had a rocket up his ass. And he would come off the ball and just shorten your neck. And I am like, Lord have mercy. So the first game, this is a true story, first game I ever started, we were in Philadelphia playing in the vet. It was like week 9 or 10. And so I get the start because Mark May tears his ACL. So I become a starter. And we're playing the – you know, they're the number one defense in football, Right. They got they've got uh, Clyde Edward they've got uh, what was it uh, oh gosh Clyde Simmons excuse me Clyde Simmons, Simmons Reggie, White. Reggie White they had uh, they had Jerome Brown um, I, I mean I, I, it was a who's who nasty uh, just just absolutely filthy right and so this is my start you know Byron Evans and and Eric Allen and and I'm I'm telling you what it was it was unbelievable so I'm gonna get this start and. Um, we're warming up in the end zone, you know. They're dog cussing us, Idaho. You're gonna get your ass kicked, you know, and all that stuff, right? So I'm warming up because Joe Jacoby's the guy who plays beside me, right? And so Joe, if you know anything about Big Jake, one, he was six foot seven. He's 310 pounds, not an ounce of fat on him right? He would, he had these casts, he had these leather casts and they had these big metal spikes that ran all the way down, like almost like rebar. Right. And they would just, cause he had broken both of his wrists. So they would just lock his hands in there. And then they would put some you know, skinny little foam pad over him. Right. And they were weapons. I mean, these things were just freaking weapons. And so we're doing one-on-one run block, you know, we're just warming up. And, um, so I go first, right. And I, come off, Joe, wah, wah, keep my feet driving, wah, wah, keep my feet driving, you and I'm like, yeah, and so now I'm playing defense, and I line up, and Joe, Joe goes, are you ready? Yeah. Wah, yeah, and he hit me, and I I blacked out, I, like, he knocked me out, I was <laughs> unconscious, I, like, got up off the game, okay? in pregame, he oh goes, he goes, are you okay, and, I go, and I'm like, literally, seeing stars, now I completely blacked out, and went, like, down to a knee, right, And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay because you want another? I go, no, (laughs) I'm good. I'm like, I I got knocked out by Joe Jacoby in pregame, and I'm like, and so then I ended up playing that game. I got a, I got a a game ball, you know, and and played. I just played my ass off. Um, Played great and ended up getting game ball stuff. But I was like, shoot, I'll never be hit harder any any harder than I was in in uh, in pregame. Like I'm gonna. Like, I was like, I'm going to make it in this league. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> like, it, Joe Jacoby hit me harder than anybody else has ever hit me. I'm I'm, I'm going to be okay. You know, the, the rest of the guys, it's a cakewalk from here
0: on out. We see, you know, Joe, we see it now all the time, right? Like, left tackles, you know, 6'7", 325. But back then, 6'7", 310, dudes weren't built like Joe Jacoby.
1: No. No, they, they weren't. And the thing about Joe is, I, I kid you not, Joe was probably – 8% body fat, like show, like you could throw a cat on Joe and they, they couldn't hang on. It just slide right off. Like there was not, there, it was not a pudgy. There was no, he was, he was ripped like like six pack abs. I mean, he was, he was a freak of nature. We went to Chicago once um, in 91, we go to Chicago, we're six and zero or whatever. We're both playing the bears, Mike Ditka's bears. And the night we fly in, it was a huge snowstorm. It's like early October, right? It's the coldest game I've ever played in. Um, and it's early October and it's whistling around and, you know, and the, and the snow's coming down. It's just, it's just filthy. It's nasty. And so we show up to the stadium that next day and somehow the heat got shut off in the visitor's locker room. And you walked in there and, like you could see your breath. I mean, you need a flashlight and a pair of tweezers to take a leak. It was so damn cold in there. <laughs> so, so I'm like, damn, I got to get like, I'm, I'm bundled up. It's freezing. And Joe Jacoby is sitting in a pair of shorts with no shirt on, just sweating. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's like, it's literally 28 degrees in here. And he's like, just kind of hot right now. <laughs> you're like, you're a different animal, man. He was a different He's a, he's a great, oh, just a great teammate and a great guy and a phenomenal player.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it, one of the coolest things that I was able to do uh, locally when I was in D.C. They're working for George Michael back in the day. Oh, yeah. Um, was being Canton when Art Monk and Daryl Green went into the Hall of Fame. And one of the things that sucked the most was when I was there the last time when, when Joe didn't get in. And I in my mind, in that group, Russ Grimm, Joe Jacoby, two hall of famers. You know, I, I would, I would love to see him in there. He, he's an absolute I, stud. You, go, I go would sir. too. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, no, no. It deserves to be. And that's, you know, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem with the voters. And, and when you get into that, you know, it, it's such a nuanced profession playing offensive line. You know, I always joke around. It's uh, the secret mushroom society, you know, only we know what we're doing in the secret mushrooms society. the head coach doesn't even know what you're doing. As long as you get it done, nobody questions you. Right. And so, um, you know, when you get to be a voter and you don't have you you just don't have any real tangible like there's no tangible statistics to measure up against other guys. And so it's really hard. You know, It's funny. I had I had a conversation last year at the Super Bowl and I was talking to the guy who was presenting trying to get uh, um, Steve Hutchinson in the Hall of Fame. And he's like, ah, Baselli's up and Hutch is up and Fanica's up and da-da-da-da-da. And there's nothing, you know, I mean, ah, all the Pro Bowls and all that stuff. But there's nothing that really is a differentiator. You know, in in my presentation, I go, are you kidding me? And he goes, no. He goes, what do you mean? I go, of course there's a differentiator. The poison pill was created in contracts over Steve Hutchinson. I was like, that's all you need to say. Like, that gets him in. Like, you created a poison pill in a contract based upon how dominant this player was. Like, I, what else needs to be... Said? And, of course, you know, he, he went into the Hall of Fame a couple, yeah. uh, you know, two days later. So, good for Steve. I, I like to, you know, again, something else I did that I get credit for <laughs> that I, I give myself credit for that nobody gives me credit for. Like, the Super Bowl 32, me, and uh, Hutchinson getting the the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame.
0: Me. But go back to the 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 hogs in DC was the five o'clock club still around when you were there? Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That five o'clock club is, uh, that little shed that, I mean, it was, it's so funny because you know, everybody go in there and they play boo Ray was the cribbage or boo Ray was the card game of choice. And, uh you know, they would just all hang out and, and have a few beers and play some cards and, uh, you know, gamble a few bucks. And it was this crappy little, Equipment shed, you know, in in the dead of winter, you'd be running the, you know, you'd be running the propane space heater, and in the back, you're you're by, you know, fourteen bags of fertilizer. I mean, it couldn't, like, it was just a little time bomb waiting for somebody to set it off. Thankfully, nobody ever, you know, it never exploded. But you know, it's and you would get done like in the five o'clock club, and you'd cough and you'd have, you know, soot. In your, like in your lungs, you know, you blow your nose and all this, it will be all black soot. And, and like guys just, that's, that's what they did. They just, they hung out and you, you know, what's, what's cool about that is, is that you connect, you know, one of the things, Dan, I always say, you've got a 13 and 14 year old. And as a parent, you know, one of the things that's always asked of me when I was raising my kids and when I'm out speaking is like, what did you do to spend quality time with your kids? And I said, anytime I spend an hour, put an hour aside to spend some quality time with my kids, they do something to piss me off, you know, (laughs) and it's no longer, it's no longer quality. You know, the key for me and the key for my wife was quantity time. I wasn't going to outsource the raising of my kids to somebody else. We were going to do it. We didn't do everything right. We made a lot of mistakes, but one thing my kids can never say is that I wasn't there. I coached my son's baseball teams from the time he was four to the time he went to high school. I coached all my daughter's soccer teams, both of my daughter's soccer teams. Um, Right now, I have an eight-year-old granddaughter. Our date every Monday and Wednesday is I take her to taekwondo practice. And I watch taekwondo practice. And I go to and fro. I want to be invested. I want to be invested in their lives. And in those moments of quantity, there are slivers of quality. Things happen we didn't let our kids take the bus. We, we drove them to school. I would like on Tuesdays, I'd pick them up. And on Fridays, I'd pick them up during the football season. And then during the off season, I drove them and picked them up every day because that time to decompress in the car, it was always with me. Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened today, dad, you know, and, and those moments, you know, there's slivers of quality. And I told Mike Shanahan, when I was here in Denver, I told him and I think in 1996, I convinced him to bring breakfast. I said, you need to start feeding us breakfast. And he's like, Oh Lord, here we go. Stink. Why, why do you need breakfast? <laughs> and I said, because instead of guys rolling in four minutes before meeting with a McMuffin, right. They roll in here an hour early. They have some breakfast, kick their feet up. They connect. And I go, I'm in here watching film. I walk in the facility every morning at 5.00 AM. I'm watching film like I, I first I'm rehabbing for two hours. Then I'm watching film for two hours. Like this is what I do. And I go, if, if the young guys came in could grab some oatmeal or some eggs and some bacon and sit down and watch film, guess what? I get to influence them. The way they study, the way they prepare, the way they get ready to play and I get to educate them on what football really is and how it really works and how to actually study film as opposed to watching film. And ultimately, you know, we go on this run, this three-year run that hasn't, I think it's been duplicated one time, tied the number of wins we had over a three-year period. We went 13 and three, 12 and four and 14 and two. And a lot of it was because of our connection as a group and because we studied together. And I always say, hey, man, four eyes are better than two and eight eyes are better than four and 16 eyes are better than eight. The more guys we get in here watching together, and it's part of the problem. You know, we have eliminated time together in franchises, and guys watch iPads at home. Man, I, I, it, it's a problem because guys don't study the game together. The more you can study it together, the more depth of knowledge you're going to have, and the more guys can say, "Hey, did you see that? Or did you look at that? Or what do you think about this?" And then it's collective, and that's well, I mean, how you—that's how you bond.
0: And- now with the pandemic even more so you're separating you're doing zoom calls and one of the things that i'm afraid is going to happen now is the players and the are going to say look look at the quality of play this year it didn't drop off we didn't have any off season we weren't together like perhaps we should continue down this road and obviously by listening to you you don't think that would be a positive
1: no i don't think it would be a positive at all and i think there i think. Um, you know you have to you have to understand that if everybody's if everybody's collective ability or collective knowledge has all dropped it's not that you it's not that it wasn't it, it's not that it wasn't good or that it wasn't entertaining but it's not as good as it could be it's not right. as entertaining as it could be and eventually you know what's going to happen you know eventually that the play is going to get so bad like where it's really bad and where it really where it where it really struggles more than any other place is up front, offensive linemen. And you know you're you're you've got hundred million dollar commodities at, at the quarterback position. Um, like I always tell people, hey, I you know I could I could take a I could take a football and throw it to you, um, and you could catch it and throw it back to me. But if we we set out to do one on ones, I'd whip your ass. Because I have a skill that's been developed over years of doing that and moving a man from point A to point B is one of the greatest skills in football against his will, same size, same strength, everything else creating leverage because, you know, I, I can't tell you how many offensive line coaches have told me, uh, you know, you got to stay lower on that. Ain't no shit. Really got to be lower. So, you know, Leverage is created through technique. It's not that you come off, if you're both six foot four, it's not that you're coming off and I'm 12 inches lower than you. Like, wow, how do you do that? No, it's technique. It's through your feet. It's through your hands. It's through your hips. It's the way you snap a guy off because you're going to hit helmets. And then one guy is going to create this kind of upward motion, like take you through the top of the stadium. And that's technique. That's technique in your hands and your feet. And that's where the game is played. And so there's no greater skill in football. And the problem is, is we keep eliminating that skill. That skill has got to be worked on. It's got to be developed. It's got to be, and it's, and it's hard if you're not doing it live, it's hard to develop that skill. And so, you know, that's the thing that worries me most is we're going to lose, we're going to continue, you know, why does like. I I just, why does, why has the game gotten to, we don't throw seven step drops anymore. Everything is get the ball out of your hands in two seconds. Everything is short is underneath. It's like, that's what the game has become because we don't have the skill to actually shoot. When I was in Washington, I can't tell you how many seven step drops we took, (laughs) you know, in 1991 we played, we went, we went uh, 14 and two in the regular season, 17 and two overall, 19 games gave up nine sacks and we threw a ton of seven-step drops. That's what we did. Yeah. Uh, You know, and and that's the the evolution of of football, if you will.
0: That season, I believe it was seven sacks in the regular season, two in the postseason. I don't know if that's been duplicated. No,
1: no. Zero in the – it was nine total. Was it nine total in the regular season? So we went in to the last game of the season in Philadelphia, and we ended up losing that game but we ended up pulling everybody. We pulled our, we pulled a bunch of our starters. We went into that game with six total sacks. Wow. And so six sacks in 15 games. And we gave up three in that game to be the total of nine. And we would have, we just set the NFL record had we been able to go, you know, keep it at six. So it was at nine, but nine total sacks. And we didn't give up a sack in the divisional playoff game. We beat uh, Atlanta, the, the, Championship game, we beat Detroit, and then in the Super Bowl, um, we put down the Bills and gave up zero sacks in, in, in those three playoff games.
0: You said you you consult with teams now, and I'm assuming yeah. that's about the, the offensive line primarily. Yeah. Yes. When you watch guys now, we always talk about the tackles, they get all the love. All right, let's let's go mm-hmm. inside for a minute. Who's uh-huh. a guard or a center that you watch? And from a technique standpoint and strength standpoint, everything you look at it and you say, This dude's a badass
1: watch the inside three. So I'm, I'm doing a game. I've got Detroit and I do, one of the things I do for my crew is I create, um, I create videos. So every game I'll create a series of probably 25, 30 videos of things that I'm looking at coverages that they play guys that like, whatever the case may be like underneath coverage where guys get lost, you know, like this is where I would attack this team because these linebackers never hit their spots. Yeah. Like, like the, the hook droppers never hit their spots. Like the, the buzz dropper is always late. you know, whatever it is. Right. So I'll create all these videos and I'll share them with my, with my group, my team. So I'm doing a Detroit game and the game that I'm breaking down at the time is Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I end up, I end up putting together like four or five clips of, um, of Roger Saffold, yep, and uh, what's the what's the right ta- right guard's name? I think it's Davis. He's a young kid out of some small school. He's
0: out of UT Chattanooga,
1: yes, or, or Charlotte,
0: and, one of the two. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and I've got i I'm doing the Detroit game, and I've got probably five videos of these guys just hunting people, like coming off the ball and just crushing people. And then, like, I got done. I was so excited. I'm like, gosh, look we'll at get sappled. Like, there's a reason that the Rams haven't been as good since they let him go. Like, Han, I, you know, and I get all done this, and I'm, I'm ready to send these videos to my crew. I'm like, oh, that's right. We're not doing the Tennessee game, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a goose. I got too excited. Um, I, I love watching, like, Ryan Jensen in Tampa is not the most skilled guy at the center position, but he's the nastiest player in football. And I was talking to Jason Light about him. And Jason's like, one of the reasons I signed him was just to create a culture in that room of nastiness. And he goes, you know, you, you have a bunch of big, good athletes, and all of a sudden you have to get, you know, attitude. And that's my attitude guy. And so it creates this toughness culture. So, you know, you, you, watch, you watch certain guys play. Trent Williams for San Francisco is literally launched from a cannon. And he may miss every now and again. But if he hits you, you're done. Um, he he's is,
0: such a good athlete, too. Oh, People don't understand what a great athlete he is.
1: Yeah. Like, like pound for pound, I'd
0: put him as, as
1: one of the, if not the best athlete in football. Uh, he's just, he's exceptional. Um, as big as big and strong and everything as he is. So there's, there's just a lot of guys that I really enjoy. You know, I just enjoy the game. I enjoy watching them play.
0: Yeah, Nate, Nate Davis. I was I was blanking on that. I should know that since I called up yeah. preseason games for the Titans. Played at Charlotte. Um, okay. Really talented young kid. Um, speaking of athletes, who, who's the best athlete you played with or against? Um, best
1: athlete with or against? Gosh, there's you know there's so many guys who're so unique. Uh, my first minicamp, the first mini camp I ever played in Washington. So we did two days on Friday, two days on Saturday. Uh and one practice on Sunday. And then Sunday afternoon, we did all the combine testing, right? Like how stupid is that, right? You, you like do you just practice for you know, but that's what we did, right? right. Jumping the verticals and all that stuff. And it's like it's a sheeting rainstorm, it's just coming down, it is just filthy, right? And um, and you know, I watched Dexter Manley run a 4.540, you know, and do reps at 450 on the bench. Good. You know,
0: he was that fast. Oh Next yeah, year?
1: yeah, I four five, that. like four five eight, four five six. Wow. In this in this rainstorm, but the whole team kind of gathered around when Daryl Green ran. Yeah, like everybody wanted to see. It. I was one of them. I wanted to see it, and it is like you got turf shoes on. They're sopping wet because you just practiced in a rainstorm, and now you're running 40s on this thick bouncy turf at old redskins park and it's like i'm it's flooding off like the water is cascading off the crown you know the crown field and daryl lines up and daryl does it's not like he's a track like he just like, ah, you know it's not like he's a smooth track athlete you know like usain bolt or whatever right and this guy takes off whom after three days after double days you know two days of practice or three days of practice in this rainstorm in regular turf shoes, not rate, not, not, you know, not, not uh, track, tracks. Tracks, tra- track cleats, right. Regular turf shoes that are sopping wet. Cause we just practiced and ran a four, two, eight.
0: Holy cow.
1: <laughs> four, two, eight. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to run anymore. I mean, it's it, it, it's, it's, re- it's ridiculous, right? It's absolutely ridiculous in those conditions um, and, and, you know, so just watching Daryl do things on film and, you know, watching him do it for 20 years, yeah. uh, it's just, do you
0: appreciate anything more than longevity because as I get older, I'm, I'm 45 now and I watch Brady and some of these other guys who play a long time and I, the quarterbacks are one thing, but when you see, you know, a linebacker or a mm-hmm. lineman that's in year 12 and 13 in the league to it's, it's, to me, that's incredible.
1: I agree. I think it's, I think it's phenomenal what they're able to accomplish. And, and, you know, I think the the big thing to me, like I played against Clay Matthews, I think he should be in the hall of fame. You know, I mean, I I remember he was in like year 10 in Cleveland and I was young and, you know, pro bowl type player. And we were running this, we're in this little fold, you know, where the center blocks back on my guy fold around. I'm, I'm going to hit the middle linebacker, you know, and I'm like, he's 10 years in the league at this time. And I'm like, I'm going to run over this old man. And I came jilling around, wham, and just, like, stymied me, right? And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> there's not. To, there's something to him. And then I'm playing against him six years later, you know, and seven years later, nine years later when he's with Atlanta. I mean, guy's a phenomenal player, Bruce Matthews. Here's what, here's what blows me away about those guys is that, like, we'd all line up and play on Sunday it's, it's Monday through Saturday. That stinks. It's the off season that it wears you down. And especially when you've had, um, the success of a Tom Brady or a Bruce Matthews or whatever to not be sated by that success to just say, Hey man, I love this game so much that I'm going to, you know, put the requisite work in to continue to compete.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me. You had an unbelievable career, um, and then you go on to have a remarkable post-playing career, doing all the things that, that you've done. Um, I've been lucky enough to, to do both studio and games. To you, what's the biggest difference and which do you like more?
1: Um, well, the biggest difference to me is you get to prepare to do studio. Um, you know what's going to be asked, and you know what you've prepared and what you've studied and, um, and what videos you've created. So, you know, if you can articulate, you can be really good in, in studio. Right. Um, games, no matter how much you prepare, it never turns out the way you think it's going to turn out. There is this extemporaneous nature to doing a game and you have to be ready to pivot at every single moment. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the thing that's been interesting to me is Mike Shan- Shanahan has been such a mentor to me and you know, I spent a lot of time watching film with him and going over like going over football and 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 everything, you know, defenses and drops and, and just you name it. We, we go through, you know, fronts and how fronts tied to the, the coverage and every, just everything. So he's been so great to me that way. And it's really cool to watch that relationship go from player to coach to coach to media guy to just friends. Right. Right. And guys that love football. Um. And so as a, as a player, you always tend to watch the game through a straw hole. You know, you're very myopic in what you did for a living. And that's where you tend to focus on, you know, you're just like looking through this straw hole. And part of the process for me was to go to Mike and say, Hey man, I need a a better global perspective on the game. I need to understand the game at a higher level. I need to understand the game as though I was a coach. And, um, and so that's, how he's mentored me and how we've gone through um, you've just gone through um, all kinds of just all kinds of the concepts of the passing games the evolution of the passing game and how certain plays evolved and how they became what they are today. And, uh, and, and just to, to, you know, um, immerse yourself in the knowledge of football. And like I've learned more in the last 18 months about the game than I learned in 12 years of playing and and uh, you know 16 years or 18 years of covering it um so it's just it's just a, a cool process
0: I love hearing that about Shanahan I, I did his coach's show one year in Washington always loved talking to him he was always so gracious with his time and I've always wondered in terms of looking at this from a Washington perspective Joe Gibbs one of the all-time greats Mike Shanahan, one of the all-time greats. I know there's, there are common threads there, obviously, but mm-hmm. what was the difference between the two as coaches?
1: Um, obviously a lot more commonalities, um, than there were were differences. I, I, I will say that both guys, um, you know, both guys believed in identity and having an identity of your offense. And that identity was run the ball, be physical, set up your play action off of that. You know, like identity is a real interesting thing to me. Like if you if you're scheming your run game every single game, meaning you're trying to attack the weakness of the defense, you don't have an identity. You don't have something to hang your hat on. There's a lot of teams that try to week to week. You're learning a new scheme or you're scheming based on a defense's weakness. Like I want to know third down and two. I'm better than you and I'm coming off the ball, and you're in trouble.
0: Just hat on like, hat, I'm going to do what I do best, and you try to stop it.
1: Yeah, and I don't care if you know exactly what we're doing. We're better than you are. And and that was something that was very common, a common thread between Mike and, and between Joe. Um, they were very much that way, incredibly detailed, great game planners. Um, you know, and, and I look at, like, I'll look at um, just – you know, Mike in general, from a game plan standpoint, you know, the two Super Bowls that we won. I mean, we we just completely like this is why we're going to win. Here's here was here was Mike in general. Like Joe said, this is what we're going to do. We we do what we do, and and we were really good at it, you know. And and Joe, like again, innovator. Joe, like I was talking to Art Monk the other day. Art Monk said his biggest fear of playing was being on the line of scrimmage because he did not have good releases. So he would get jammed up on his release. How did, as big and strong as Art Monk was, he would get jammed? Yeah, he just was, because he's a big chested guy. You know, he's a big, big receiver. And he had a lot of room. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't quote unquote gelatinous. And so he said, my biggest fear was, was being on the line of scrimmage because I wasn't good. I was never good at releases. And Joe Gibbs called him into his office at at one point in Joe's first year there and said, hey man, I'm going to move you into kind of, from the Z receiver to more of the F flanker H, whatever you want to call it. Right. And you're going to be in motion. You're going to be in the back of a, you know, back of a, a stack, you know, a bunch formation. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to get you free releases. And once they did that for art, he became a multiple pro bowl and went to hall of fame. But recognizing again what a guy can and can't do, and putting him in a position instead of saying, "Man, what a wasted first-round pick!" Right? Art Monk can't get off the ball; he can't get off press. We can't use it now. Let's let's move him in a different position. Um, so, from a game planning standpoint, you know, Mike Shanahan. Uh, this is one of the things I, I appreciate about Kyle Shanahan and Mike. They'll tell you how they're going to attack a team, why they're going to attack a team. If you buy into this way that we're going to do this, why you're going to have success. And if we do it five or six times, the explosive plays that are going to be generated off of this, off the adjunct play action, and I'm going to get one to you, one to you, two to you. And so everybody goes, okay, they buy in, and it happens exactly the way he says it's going to happen. And you're like, oh, yeah, like we're playing – we're playing a Super Bowl, Super Bowl 32 against the Packers. And Mike says, well, here's what we do. Like, every time we're in this formation, we got into strong right slot. So we've got tight end on the right, fullback, tailback, right? Like this. Mm-hmm. Strong right, slot. X on the outside, Z in the slot. Every time we get in that, the, the Green Bay Packers exchange the responsibility of their outside weak side linebacker, who's Brian Williams, and Leroy Butler. So Leroy Butler comes screaming down from 12 yards and essentially becomes the Will linebacker. And the Will linebacker gets in a, like a one-by-one, two-by-two hit and basically is sprinting out to take away the slants. So he's no longer. And you watch it on film, and every team on the backside, when they ran strong handoff, every team was scooping that defensive tackle. So it's tackle and, uh, tackle and guard scooping. To the to the the backside will linebacker who's literally in coverage playing safety, and here comes Leroy Butler screaming from twelve yards, making plays in the backfield every time. So we literally got in that formation, and we just turned the will the weak side linebacker free and just giving. I mean, Leroy Butler was getting a mouthful of Rydell. Like he, he's like, where is this where's this guy coming from? This has never happened to me before. And TD is ripping off eight yard, nine yard, fifteen yard runs right and left, right. and. And it was it was one of those things like, hey, this is what they're going to do. We're going to get in this and we're going to gut them. And it's exactly what was exactly what happened. And, you know, it was always that way. We played Atlanta in Super Bowl 33 and Mike came into the meeting and said, hey, listen, they're the number one sack team in football, called themselves the bomb squad. And um, like of their 55 or whatever it was sacks, like 40 some of them are in nickel. We were playing this whole game in base. We're never going to let them get into that package. So when we wanted to spread, go spread. You know, Howard Griffith, our fullback, would run out outside the numbers, and, and Terrell Davis would run out in the slot. And we run our whole offense, all of our slot type of, or all of our uh, a spread type of running our our pass plays. We'd run out of out of base. We never let them ever see nickel. We never got into three wides, not one time in that game, because that's what they were good at. And we're like, we're not going to let you be good at what you're good at. And and those are the things that great coaches like Joe Gibbs or like Mike Shanahan do for their teams, and the reason you have so much confidence when they call plays.
0: Yeah, is Mike is Mike content? Just kind of, essentially, he's a consultant for Kyle, right? He just helps out Kyle. He watches tape. He's he's made a ton of money. He's living a, the good life. Is he? He doesn't yeah. want to be a head coach again, does he?
1: Uh, if, this, if the situation was right, um, as of a couple of years ago, when I talked to him about it. Yeah. He would yeah. go back. I think he loves, he loves the grind. He, he loves it. And the guy is like, he is the most unrelenting I'm talking to. It was funny because when Jimmy Garoppolo had the ACL, I'm having a conversation with Jimmy and we're talking about studying with Mike and like, I'll go over to Mike's house and we will run like he'll run. I'll just give you, for instance, a, a two man combo called branch. Okay. Okay. it's a west coast it's a west coast it's it's the inside receiver is running instead of a 6 yard stick route a 6 yard out route he's running an 8 yard out route so it's it's instead of stick it's branch okay and the x receiver the z receiver or the running back whoever it is on the outside runs a go and that's a two man concept to that side called branch now you watch that 6 times and you pretty much understand the concept right right we watched Branch, no lie, for two hours. And Mike can't, Mike can't get enough of it. And so I'm talking to Jimmy about it. And I'm like, the guy is un- unrelenting. And he goes, dude, he goes, he never takes a piss. He goes, I've got the ACL going on. He goes, I ended up watching. Like I was in, in the room with him for like four straight hours. He's drink, he drank like five cups of black coffee. And Jimmy goes, Hey man, do you mind if we take a break? I got to hit the head. He goes, yeah, no problem. He goes, I go to the bathroom. I come back. He's still sitting there sipping coffee. He goes, all right, ready to start. And we went for another couple hours. He goes, the guy never took a, a break ever. <laughs> like I, and, and he loves it like Kyle those Kyle will tell me all the time because like i don't love football nearly as my father that's all he doesn't watch tv he watches game tape that's all that he right? watches oh my gosh the guy's unbelievable he's such a wealth of knowledge and um he just has such a depth of of knowledge on everything that's going on on a football field it's it's incredible to sit down and just just watch it with him and and uh and study it with him
0: what a great sounding board for, for Kyle to have. And I didn't realize that <clears throat> I knew you were tight with Mike, but the type of mentorship he has as you moved into the into the booth. Mark, an unbelievable run as a player. I, I love what you do off the field. You're working uh, with Adam Amin and my good friend, Lindsay Zarniak, who I worked mm-hmm. with in D.C. for a long time. Great crew. Um, keep it up, brother. And I, I, I kept you a long time. I really appreciate it. Um, and we're going to send you some, some Viore gear. That's one of our sponsors. So we'll make sure we get you a big box of that.
1: All right. Well, it sounds good. It was a pleasure. Anytime you need me, just holler. You know where to find me. Thanks, Dink. You got it, buddy.